Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Sverre Ogur. And I'm Thomas Simonsen Bambra. And today we're discussing a Japanese movie by the renowned director Takashi Miike, 2001's Visitor Q, starring Kenichi Endo as Kiyoshi Yamasaki, the father, Shingiku Ushida as Keiko Yamasaki, the mother, Fujiko, which is apparently the full name, as Miko Yamasaki, the daughter, uh, Yunmuto as the son, Kazushi Watanabe as Visitor Q, and Shoko Nakahara as Asoko Murata. So this is about a seriously dysfunctional family. As the film starts out, we have the loser father, who's kind of a jobless, formerly like a television uh, reporter. Ex-journalist. Yeah. And mother is a heroin addict and a prostitute. The daughter has run away from home and is also a prostitute. And the son is severely bullied and also severely bullies his own mum. So there's a very agitated and uh, problematic uh, dynamic. Yeah, just the cycles of abuse and terror and just uh, mistreatment. and mm. Yeah. And this film, it doesn't spend any time to introduce or prepare the characters. You kind of just dropped into situations as they occur. The first situation is, well, you see a title screen that says, have you ever done it with your dad? And then there's the, the daughter, the prostitute, and the father. Although, I mean, even though the title screen says it, you kind of still have to, you have to think about, is this actually a father-daughter situation? Uh, yeah, it's not explicitly understood until later in the movie. Mm. So you sort of can can imagine that uh, it's going to refer to something else maybe eventually. But mm. but no, it's the daughter. It's a sex worker getting paid for having sex with her father. Apparently he's shooting a sort of thing. So he's there... Because he's interested in filming like youth culture, young people in troubled situations, and he's uh, filming his daughter, what like an interview or something, and uh, she wants his money, so she wants to initiate sex and seduces him more or less. Yeah, they're in a uh, in a love hotel. Yeah. I think. So it starts off weird, properly weird. And it doesn't get any less weird as it goes along. No, it's pretty thoroughly weird throughout, throughout the movie. But it's kind of film that it's easy to label it as just like a, a, a weird and an extreme film with, you know, absurd situation happening after absurd situation. Which is something that Takashi Mika, well, that's criticism that's often directed towards him. Yeah. That his movies are just weird and mm. abrasive. Mm. And shocking for no reason, apart mm. from being shocking, et cetera, et cetera. Stuff you've heard about, you know, unpleasant movie makers many times. Mm. And he's no exception. But I feel he's often underestimated. Yeah, because it's easy to do. And uh, some of that has to do with Japanese culture. He references a lot of things very specifically that are not necessarily so clear from a Western point of view, unless you've seen a bunch of Japanese films and, and know the culture a little bit. Like all, all these characters' dynamics, they're kind of genre references, like the salary man who's, uh, you know, often portrayed as kind of suicidal or a failure. We have like the failed father trope here as well through a lot like South Park and Simpsons, this kind of comical idiot uh, who's uh, incapable of managing anything. Yeah, just bubbling idiot. But a lot of these mm. characters are like stock characters of, mm. of Japanese B cinema. Yeah. So he uses them. Yeah, like the prostitute mum and, and um, the bullied son. 
So it kind of starts out with these clear genre tropes and within also the subgenre, the dysfunctional family. There's several films that deal with this in different ways. And um, in comes Visitor Q, which is a, a young, fancy clad young man. He looks like he's uh, in the Yakuza or something. Yeah, he looks like he's in the uh, Yakuza from a Takashi Miike film. Right, right. <laughs> like, uh, like too cool for school. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like a Takashi Miike character. Yeah, which means, you know, he, he has a Hawaii shirt and leather pants. He's kind of hip, but he yeah. doesn't say much. No, he's uh, sort of inexplicable. He, yeah. He's just there. Yeah, he observes and he has uh, two or three, like, important actions in the movie. And he kind of initiates something that started... I mean, it's not so explicit. Like, the, the first thing he does is um, he has a, a big rock that he smashes into the father's head <laughs> as uh, the father's on his way to work. And later on, he does it again to the father. <laughs> and then he follows him home and just... He's a part of the family now. Yeah, and he doesn't take, like, a moral stance. You have... Like these horrible scenes, uh, some of the most gruesome scenes, I think, with a son beating the mother yeah, quite he's, viciously. He's really sadistic towards the mother. Yeah. But this character uh, of Visitor Q, yeah. he's, it's a take on a, on a sort of literary character, often mm. appears, you know, the stranger uh, yeah. coming in from nowhere, not explained, mm. and sort of stirs stuff up. Mm. And of course, it's also a reference to another movie mm. by a, a director we're familiar yeah, with. Pasolini. Yeah. It's Teorama, it's the film. Yeah. I'm not sure how explicitly it is a reference or if it's just a very similar type of um, setup. I mean, the films are quite different. Yeah, but functionally, it's sort of the same mechanic yeah, this character yeah, yeah. inhibits uh, of the stranger coming into a family and sort of uh, putting the dynamic out of balance yeah, yeah, in some way. You have a uh, Terence Stamp as a character who comes in and has sex with everyone and then seduces suddenly, the family basically yeah, yeah and then leaves and uh, that kind of creates a crisis uh, and he's unnamed in that movie so and yeah. and visitor q, q here he's named visitor q for whatever reason but he's yeah. not named he's, no, he's no. not really referenced at all not really properly acknowledged no. uh, he's like a catalyst the interesting thing is that he he doesn't judge he observes to some degree, but he's not very interested. Like He's not judging at all. Mm. In fact, to uh, sort of uh, almost provocatively, not so. Like mm. uh, the son keeps abusing the mother. He's mm. just eating his dinner and like not letting it affect him yeah. whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And later in the movie, when more, more extreme stuff starts mm. to happen, he's just observing. Like mm. It's almost as if he's this allegorical character. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it's kind of like a literary trope in a sense. Mm. Um, it has to be said also that the father as well, doesn't react to... I mean, the whole family is just super passive, yeah. with the slight exception of uh, the, the children. The daughter going out and prostituting herself as a sort of, and being away from the family, and the mm. son being super sadistic. But mm. um, apart from that, it's just this really sad sack, uh, sort of um, down-and-out family. Mm. Um, and um, I don't know, the, the way Visitor Q sort of glides into this family almost unnoticed is just... Uh, it, sort of shows how much apathy this family inhibits. Yeah, and things do start to change as he arrives, but not necessarily how you'd expect. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of abuse and, and sex and weirdness going on. Uh, the father, he's, he's been sacked from his uh, journalist job, but he has this idea that he wants to create a documentary about his relationship to his son while his son is being bullied. And that's interesting because it doesn't really seem like he has any interest in the son apart from wanting to make a documentary mm. to get his job back or yeah, whatever. Yeah, he's not helping him in no, situations. No, no. It's just so. observing. 
but almost, you know, there's, there's something very childlike about him. He's kind of uh, super engaged in his project. He's, he's, we'll come back to that later yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I think there's some, some, uh, some great comedic timing to yeah. the father character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Visitor Q, both of these characters are very funny in their own way, mm. like in the gestures and the way they move about the, stay, the scenes and, mm. and just the way they sort of behave in these situations where you'd expect them to have a different reaction or sort of a different uh, agency than they mm. have uh, it's it's funny I, like I, this movie is just really funny to me mm. but not in the way that it, it's sort of it's just funny but it's it's very humorous and and mm. the extreme scenes in it sort of the impact of them are sort of less but not in the negative yeah. way yeah. like it sort of incorporates them in a way that's that works well for watching this movie i think yeah i mean it doesn't do emotional setup so you're not invested in the characters in the sense that and uh, now you're seeing a dramatic scene that feels bad because we're invested in the characters some of the things are implicit, like a mother-son relationship. When you see that deeply dysfunctional, it is unpleasant to watch. But a lot of the times, they're just situations that are kind of escalating. You have these bullies that are bullying the son and sending these uh, fireworks into the house. They're kind of attacking the homestead. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the violence and escalations and stuff reminds me of Clockwork Orange and the way that it's so... There's so little, like... Um, background and it's almost like it's not objective but it's sort of objectified in a way that makes it palatable to watch even though horrible stuff is going on mm. because as you said you don't really have this huge investment in these characters mm. and there's a sort of comedic tinge to everything yeah absolutely and i mean it's, it's filmed yeah. not amateur but with like handheld cameras yeah it's filmed on, on digital cameras this is like one of the early like dv films that you know, had a lot of acclaim as well. And it's it's actually one of the few examples and, and definitely the first film I saw where I felt that, you know, this film is definitely better because it's shot on uh, this video format. It makes it more unpleasant and makes it more raw in a way. This is a really cheap movie. I think this is one of his cheapest, maybe discounting some of his really early stuff um, yeah, like the format really works well for this movie. Mm. I read an interview mm. uh, with Takashi Miike uh, in Forbes uh, on Halloween last year. Uh, it was interviewed by Jeff Ewing. And he said that Mr. Q was one of his favorite movies just because of that. Like it showed him that you could make a low budget film and still make it work really well. Like mm. he, he said that. Visitor Q taught him that there are some kinds of films that can only be made as low-budget films that wouldn't really work as anything else. It's specifically because they're low-budget films that they actually work well. So it seems like he really drew some sort of um, lessons from working with uh, this movie. He built his entire career on the kind of straight-to-video. In Japan in the 90s, they had this big boom where they just needed loads of directors to make straight to video and um, you know he, he had a long career in television from before and kind of graduated from um, just a production assistant uh, over a course of I think 10 years he'd gone gone up the ranks and then kind of happenstance uh, started to direct and not really with a strong intention of doing it but then kind of falling into direction and, you know, early 90s he was making three or four films a year, just these direct-to-video, they, they were not screened in cinemas uh, and um, they were, you know, written pretty quickly and produced very easily. Uh, so, so he has that background with working on low-budget filmmaking. Well, it's, it's important to note, though, that that's not necessarily because he didn't want to work with high-budget stuff, but often it was a way of... Uh, 
the only way of working with ideas that were too extreme for regular Japanese cinema. Um, and when you just uh, release a straight video, you can do a lot more things. Well, in his case, you know, he, I mean, he's not a writer-director. I mean, maybe he's writing a little bit these days. But back in those days, he, he was more like a, a journeyman. Um, and there weren't his ideas necessarily. He was just a, a guy who was hired in to do stuff. There was a, a lot of people who, who worked that way back then. Uh, not so many have remained directors today. You know, he, he started film uh, originally as a, as a young man, but he kind of didn't engage him very much, so he didn't show up much f- for the school stuff. <laughs> so he was absent a lot of the time. And uh, I think like his last year, there was just a, a television production that asked for students. Uh, and he was the only one who wasn't doing anything because everyone else was making their films. <laughs> so they just threw him into that and he started working there and he did a, a really bad job, apparently, he said himself. But, you know, once he was in it, he was just kind of picked up part of that uh, kind of uh, criminality and started just working as a production assistant, uh, uh, started getting paid. And then, you know, the loop started going and he had a lot of complicated feelings, uh, film versus television, where like uh, television work was often looked down upon. Which it has been for, for years and years. But in specifically in Japan as well, where they were, you know, often they had to work harder and they'd get less and they weren't appreciated. So... Um, in some ways, you know, he came from like almost this disinterested youth and famous today for making like, you know, these days he just makes a couple of films a year. But around like the late 90s, early 2000s, he was making four to, you know, 2001, the year Vista Q came out. That was like eight films a year. Incredibly prolific yeah, at that time. Amazingly prolific. And there's a film scholar, uh, author called Tom Mess, who wrote quite extensively about him, about this area of his oeuvre, you can say. And um, managed to, you know, pick up a few thematic lines, even though he doesn't create the projects. There's a lot of things that, that come across so many of the films. And um, one of them is a, a family and uh, outsiders as a, a person who's stigmatized from society uh, with issues of identity and belonging, you know, immigrants often, that sort of stuff. And then perhaps several of them coming together and... and um, Typically, still bad endings, but uh, <laughs> some <laughs> yeah. some unity. Uh. Yeah, there's some unity. Like it, it doesn't surprise me because his background, and he said in interviews multiple mm. times mm. that he was very apathetic and disinterested as a, as a young man, mm. and he really sort of fell into the whole um, movie making mm. career. And so he's sort of lived this outsider life. He yeah. wasn't interested in going to school or doing well mm. or cramming or, or, or these things. He just he was very directionless. He didn't know what he wanted to do at all. Mm. So I'm sure he has like some, some deep, deep empathy and, and sympathy for, for outsiders as characters. Like even when he doesn't choose the project, mm. he sure does imbue these characters with certain, certain something. Yeah. And this film as well. I mean, they are outcasts. They're uh, all outcasts, really. And uh, failures in a very... The film starts with them being emotional failures as well. And it, in that sense, it kind of um, brings them home. Although it puts them through a really weird journey. (laughs) Yeah, to put it mildly. In the beginning of the movie, the the family just has no cohesion. There's there's just no feelings, no Mm. positive feelings between any of these characters. Mm. It seems like it's just cold and uh, problematic for everyone involved. Mm. There's ostensibly this family, but there really isn't. Mm. They almost act as if they're strangers. It's almost hilariously bad, like the Mm. stuff going on with them, Mm. like the bullying and the fireworks into Mm. their house, breaking glass. And like everyone's just so apathetic that they hardly even do anything about anything. 
in one scene they're having dinner um the fireworks is going off inside the their house because they're bullies and they're just eating dinner <laughs> it's it's uh and and that sort of contrast is funny to me mm. even though it's sad it's mm. still like it's still funny the yeah. way it's portrayed yeah, it's really absurd the film yeah very absurd mm. I don't think it's meant to be like this um, this uh, nuanced and complex portrayal of a realistic family. That's not what this movie is about. Mm. Even though there are certainly nuances in this movie, it's very exaggerated, everything. Mm. Like a lot of Takashi Miki's work. Mm. Uh, in a way, that's very funny and stimulating mm. to me, anyway, watching it. Yeah, there's typically something very playful about how he deals with characters. The kind of cartoony. The father in this, I think, is, is pretty good, actually. He's this... I mean, he's really deeply invested in this um, film project um, and he gets so excited when he sees his son getting bullied and just wants to capture that. And he kind of, uh, he, he has a, a former love interest. Uh, co-worker too? Yeah, yeah. They were co-workers and, and former lovers. And um, so he's pitching these ideas of the documentary father-son, son being bullied. Yeah, and he's viewing the bullying as just good content. Yeah. And a way to get his job back. Mm. It's really cynical. Yeah. <laughs> and it shows just how little emotional understanding this father mm. has. He's just, he's like, he's like a child with no like empathy. Mm. He's a strange character. And she's disgusted, the, the former lover. And she, she's one of the few people who have actual like a, a realistic emotional... Uh... Reactions to yeah. stuff? Yeah, yeah. She, she seems like an actual person. Mm. <laughs> Not that that helps so much. <laughs> no, in fact, that may be what led to her downfall. I guess we can talk about that. Yeah. Because towards the end of the movie, uh, he sort of uh, decided to go through with the, his film project. Mm. And he wants to sort of uh, get his former co-worker to step in and stop the bullying while he's filming or something. Mm. And uh, she's sort of, I don't know even why she joined the car trip down there. But anyway, she, she balks at it and she wants to just leave. And she tries to leave and uh, the father stops her, tries to rape her. And chokes her and, and kills her while Visitor Q is just filming constantly. He's, he's just observing, yeah. not saying a word. Yeah. Meanwhile, the son is being bullied and these bullies are trying to force him to take a shit. Then they piss all over him. Yeah, and they piss all over him when he can't do that. And when the father, he starts to get aggressive, he asks her, why did you leave me? Is it because uh, I um, ejaculate too fast? And he's, he's hung up on this idea of uh, lasting long for sex. <laughs> in the first thing with her daughter, after the brief sexual encounter, she keeps uh, mocking him and calling him an early bird. Yeah, he was too fast. Yeah. And she uh, wants to charge him more for being... Uh, <laughs> for being quick on the draw. Uh, it's funny because uh, she's his daughter. Mm. So it's just weirdly absurd that, that the whole thing occurred mm. to begin with. And then he sort of draws on that. Mm. memory as he's sort of choking this poor ex-love interest. It's just so humorously tragic. Yeah, it comes up again because uh, after he he murders her accidentally, um, he takes her home and uh, he's, he's kind of preparing to cut her up and stuff and then he gets sexually aroused and decides to have sex with her. Uh, and uh, in that situation, <laughs> when she's a dead body, he manages to um, last longer. And he's really excited about that. Yeah, that whole scene is just, again, it's like it's horrific, mm. but it's also sort of funny. Mm. And then he thinks that he's getting her wet, even though she's dead. But yeah. it turns out it's just shit. Yeah, she's taking shit. And then he gets sort of uh, incensed and, and aggressive, but he keeps fucking her until rigor mortis uh, starts uh, making its appearance and, and his dick gets trapped in, in her body. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> all the while, uh, Visitor Q, is, he's gone inside and there's this sort of a parallel scene unfolding mm. about the mother mm. and Visitor Q. Mm. Um, after she comes home, after a day of selling her body, he uh, sort of starts... Um, it looks like he's about to seduce her. Yeah. She, the, he's sitting in, in the daughter's room and she comes home and he, he asks her to sit down next to him. And it looks as if it's about to get like an intimate thing. Yeah, and then he just starts uh, sort of massaging her nipples uh, and the squirting milk from her nipples. And mm. there's a lot of squirting. Yeah. It goes on for quite some time. And it, it's like the mother has this epiphany mm. because of this. Mm. Like uh, after the, that scene and they're just squirting and squirting all, all over the puzzle pieces. She's laying a puzzle in the first scene you see her and, uh, and her son is beating her. Uh, and they're in the sister's room and there's this milk squirting all over and the son is just seeing milk <laughs> getting squirted. And it's, yeah, it's a super weird scene. But after that, she sort of has this epiphany of, oh, I have some self-worth. I'm, I'm not this uh, freak and loner and pathetic character. I'm just mm. a regular woman, <clears throat> which I mean. Yeah, yeah. Her, her identity as like a, like a mother or, or a provider for the family, in a sense, is kind of reinvigorated in like, it's almost in like a, an ecstasy of self-realization. She yeah, becomes really, till, up to that point, she's been very downtrodden and unenthusiastic. At this point, she becomes, you know, really... Um, sort of euphoric almost. Yeah. Um, it's like this sexualization of validation mm. of her as a mother and provider. And it's interesting, like, uh, symbolically, but the scenes are so, <laughs> just so direct and, and uh, sort of off-putting. Yeah, yeah the, the actress is lactating. And there's so much milk, too. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. not just uh, some squirts. Like, there's enough to, like, cover the floor in the first scene. And then the second scene is going on while the father is having sex with this corpse in the <laughs> greenhouse outside. Yeah. And she's dressed in a trash bag and she's sort of lactating all over the floor while mm. Visitor Q is standing there or sitting there with an umbrella. Yeah, a see-through <laughs> so, umbrella. Yeah, it's just so funny. At that point, she's also uh, discharging some vaginal fluids of some sort. Yeah. Uh, uh, and she just covers the entire floor with this uh, quite unpleasant... Uh, <laughs> just mix of bodily fluids. Uh, like it's quite a deep layer of bodily fluids on the floor. It's just... Yeah, like the imagery is is uh, pretty crazy. Mm. The camera dwells on it too. It's, yeah. th it's not like there's this... It doesn't shy away. No, no, no. It really wants to show the sort of the whole whole sensation of it. Mm. And um, yeah, and once uh, the father's dick gets stuck inside this, this poor dead woman, he calls out for his wife, as yeah. you do. And uh, she goes to buy a lot of vinegar at the supermarket and... They get into a bathtub and pour vinegar on them and try to sort of get the dick to unlodge, uh, which doesn't work. And uh, then she gives him a shot of heroin. Yeah. And a presto. Yeah. Dick is out. Nice big plop. Yeah. The, the sound effects in this are often quite, you know, comical, like a, a gunshot sounds for a hard cut or like a bodily things being... You know, almost cartoony. Yeah, and the way this, this like, after they get the body to the house, there's this sort of sense of there's no horror or anything. It's mm. just, like, almost the family coming together and yeah. uniting yeah. over this horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. And, uh, like, once the dick is out, they start clapping and stuff. Mm. It's so stupid. Mm. And um, then they bring her over to the kitchen table or something, and the son comes home. Yeah. And uh, the father is like... I'm finally going to do it. And then he fucking just 
kills the bullies with like a knife. Yeah, yeah. And the this, mother kills one. Yeah, this is interesting because at this point the the kind of rejuvenated. They've been united in a yeah, sense. Yeah, they're they're reunited. And when the bullies now come and attack, it's important that they've not just been attacking their their son. They've also been attacking the house and. And now that they're like heavily bullying the son just outside, the father suddenly with his reinvigoration, he uh, he runs out and starts to brutally murder them. Yeah, um, he's, he's like, he can finally, you know, do what he's meant to do. Hmm. He's been sort of drawn out of his apathy and stupor and, and now he, he has agency again. Yeah, yeah. Because of this weird family hmm. reunion over this horrific incident. It's... It's really weird. Like the whole thing is just a really difficult concept to swallow. Mm. It's filmed in a way that sort of makes sense, even though it shouldn't. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't feel, filmatically, it works logically. It doesn't feel like shoddy. But, you know, if you if you just had sex with a corpse, would your wife be the person you would call out for normally? Not just a corpse, but this woman you yeah. murdered. Who was your ex-lover? Yeah, and you get your dick stuck inside the body and you just call out for your wife and she's like, sure. Let's fix it. <laughs> sure, father of my children, I'll help you with this. Yeah. And it's it's like a good thing. Yeah. And then Vizier yeah. Q's there and he's sort of like, he's sort of the, the instigator that brings about all these changes too. So like through horror, these seemingly positive changes mm. to the family. Mm. And uh, yeah, when, and they kill the bullies and they they, they seem pretty euphoric. And then you see, sort of, you, you go to a different scene with the uh, visitor queue in the city. This is later on. Yeah. He, by happenstance, uh, meets the daughter. She's trying to sell sex to him. And uh, he takes a rock to her head, just like he did her father earlier. Yeah, you know, that's the medicine right there for familial troubles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a shock to the head. You need something to... Burst your bubble in a sense. Yeah, so. but also it's like almost like uh, pushing over a domino piece. Yeah. Like the, the rock, you're mm. sort of starting something. Mm. I don't know, like allegorically, that, that feels like it's, it's, a, it's a thing. Yeah. I mean, the situation with the mother is the, is the clearest one. I mean, when he knocks the rock in the father's head and follows him home, that doesn't necessarily start too many changes. I mean, something's changed. Well, that's what I mean by a domino mm. piece, because yeah. it sort of takes a while mm. for these changes to take effect. It mm. takes a while for you to sort of see what's going mm. on. It's not as if the father, you know, has a big realization, oh shit, what have I done with my life now? I need to change it. No, it's more like he gets hit in the head and then it's like, oh, who are you? You're, you're coming with me? That, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. <laughs> he doesn't probably seem to acknowledge that he's the guy who hit him in the head either. No, it's like <laughs> he almost lost memory, but he clearly didn't because he remembers the whole thing with the daughter and stuff. Mm. Uh, and not once do they ask his name no. or why he's there. No, no, he's accepted immediately as just a... Yeah, so, so like the logics of the movie are clearly in their sort of own universe. Mm. Like stuff doesn't work the way things normally work. Mm. And you sort of have to swallow that idea to watch mm. the movie at all. Otherwise, you're just going to get like offended by the plot holes or whatever. But it's not really plot holes. Mm. It's, it's the way the movie is constructed. Mm. But it's, it's certainly a weird movie and a weird framework. Yeah, still quite engaging. Uh, but it's one that a lot of people, I, th I think, would feel that seen this once, they'd never want to see it again. But it does reward repeat viewings, actually. Because there's a lot of little details, even though, I mean, like the characters are very tropey, you know. 
there's a lot of visual indicators that are not spoken so clearly. For example, uh, the son being this otaku loner. He in his room he has all these comics and he's very neat. He has these uh, whipping instruments he uses on his mother. They're very neatly hung in his room. Yeah, carpet uh, beaters. He has this collection of <laughs> carpet mm. beaters neatly hung in his closet mm. to beat his mother with. Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, there's a lot of little details like that that mm. really. Not necessarily like bring backstory to the characters, but really like cement the characters uh, mm. as who they are. Mm. And it's funny, you know, it's just so absurd to mm. have this collection of carpet beaters as a what, 13 year old. Why would you need, like, yeah, why would you need different? Like, do you have some you prefer and like <laughs> some you use on the weekends or <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's really curious. Like I said before, it's a really low budget and apparently it was shot in seven days' time. And, you know, like the, the sets, that they look quite cheap. And the makeup effects also, they look, you know, quite quite basic. They're still effective, though. I mean, you yeah. can still sense the pain of them. But Yeah, but but also it's sort of part of the charm of the movie. Mm. It, it all works. Mm. Like, even the even the low-budget gore effects work. Um, and it senses, like, like Japanese films often do, they censor the uh, uh, sexual organs and that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's like a blur. Yeah. But that almost makes it worse in a sense. It kind of increases the unease of like yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree. It, it makes it makes you focus on it more. I think. But even so, a lot of the cinematography is, is quite good in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of nice shots, and and the beginning sequence with the father and daughter almost reminds me of Claire Denis in a way. The mm. sort of uh, it doesn't focus on the right stuff. Mm. At times, it focuses like beside the characters, mm. and it, and it feels very like you're in the room almost. Mm. It's very nicely done uh, directorially. Uh, yeah, he's, he's very, he's, in some ways he's very precise. I mean, there's an element of chaos in the narrative and all that sort of stuff, but filmatically he, he's quite precise in what he does. Yeah, he's precise but and yet playful. Like mm. there's one scene where he cuts to a cityscape and it's like a 360 shot mm. and it's just thrown in there and it works very well. Like it's a nice beat, but mm. it, it, it's not necessary. Like mm. he does a lot of little touches like that. But yeah, the, the shot selection is very good. Like every, it, it, it works well, even though it's clearly shot on an extremely low budget. Like the quality could be like a school project or whatever, but because it's so competently made by Takashi Miike, it, mm. it certainly doesn't feel like that when you're watching it. No, no, no. And I, I remember like around this time, you know, you'd have several directors who were who making films. Uh, I think Steven Soderbergh did a, a film called Full Frontal, which was shot on digital, better equipment than this, <laughs> and lots of famous actors. And around about the same time, we also had David Lynch, who did the um, Inland Empire. That was a bit later on. But uh, yeah, and Lars von Trier with uh, with the Dogma movies also. Yeah, that was lots mostly of, shot on film, though. Yeah, but uh, lots of uh, natural lighting and stuff yeah. like that. Mm. I think also Inland Empire managed to you know look really good on 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 digital video. It's kind of a format that I guess it has some nostalgic value, like an aesthetic. But it, it's 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 such a raw, bare, and cold format. I find it very interesting, actually. It gives it, like, its own nerve. Like, the range in terms of the light and the colours is quite small. It quickly uh, burns out the light sources. Uh, well, it's often been used as a sort of shorthand for found footage mm. and sort of believability yeah. or, or verisimilitude. Often, of course, that's combined with, like, shaky cam and, and stuff yeah. that makes it unbearable to watch a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. This is not that at all. No. It's just shot with a cheap camera, mm. but... Of course, there's some found footage stuff in the first scene, uh, and the scene where he, where he's getting where the journalist father is getting abused by these bullies. 
Yeah. I want to talk a bit about that because there is a like a um, through line of assholes where you have the father. This is a situation that we, we see he's sitting in his car and he's looking at some old video footage from about the situation where he lost his job, uh, presumably, where he's yeah, filming. Yeah, they, they discuss it. Yeah. Um, and he's filming these youths and they get really offensive and uh, uh, kind of knocks him over and takes down his pants and they stick his, the microphone up his arsehole. So that's pretty unpleasant. And then you have the situation with the son being bullied and told to shit and the situation with the father's having sex with a uh, dead body and she starts to shit. Bodily fluids coming out. So. Yeah, yes, like this big smear of shit on his hand mm. and tries to sort of wipe it off on her back. Yeah, it does have a sort of uh, fecal sort of... Uh, focus on that but I, I i don't see it as a theme i just see it as no, no, like this i agree this way of being shocking and, and entertaining almost i don't think it's a theme either but like to me it shows how degrading a lot of these scenes are mm. right to the characters involved to the father it's super degrading for him to be bullied by these younger people mm. in a sort of journalistic profession mm. he's being mocked by shoving the microphone up his ass his son is being degraded by mm. bullies right being told mm. to shit and of course, the the ex love interest is being degraded in the worst possible way by mm. being raped mm. while she's dead. Mm. So I know it's it's sort of a the, like the theme of degradation is certainly there in the movie, of all characters involved except maybe Visitor Q, who's just there as a this phantom, mm. phantom menace. Yeah. <laughs> there is some kind of like a religious uh, symbolism almost. Uh, it has a bit of like. The closing shot, the Mar- like the Maria, or like a yeah, yeah. You you have uh, when the daughter comes home, uh, she finds her mother outside in this uh, greenhouse. Yeah, covered in a tarp. Yeah, and she uh, mother opens up the tarp, and then the father, very infant like, is suckling on her breast. Yeah, and that's the same tarp, by the way, that the the woman's body. Was yeah, in. <laughs> yeah. And the mother and the daughter exchange smiles. Yeah, the daughter is like relieved. Yeah. And this is after she's been beaten by Visitor Q with a yeah. rock. She's, she's all bruised. Yeah, she and goes, she joins her father lactating. Yes, yeah, so the mother is nursing her, her daughter and her husband. Yeah. The final shot is very symbolic, really weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a genre of these icon images with the lactating Madonna and stuff. Right. It kind of uh, reminds me a bit of that, just visually. Yeah, yeah, certainly. It does have that quality. And with the, the tarp, sort of like a shroud or like a... It does sort of uh, harken to, to like classical imagery of motherhood mm. and parenthood. It's interesting that they that the theme of, of family and motherhood and parenthood are, are... It's such an important theme in this movie, I feel. At the same time, it's like being so degraded in every possible way with the incest and with everything. There's a really interesting article written about this film by a woman named Fiona Giles. She kind of centers on the uh, the breastfeeding uh, aspects um, and talks about like how it becomes um expression of her maternal empowerment and uh, you know she, she's the one who who feeds the family even before, you know, often under abuse. Uh, yeah, she's a good cook and, and Visitor Q is like praising mm. her cooking and it's a, it's a lot of scenes dealing with her being sort of a good feeder, like good provider for her family in that sense. Yeah, and kind of the lactation, she writes about how that becomes a symbol of her power and generosity as a way to end her victimization and somehow, you know, that starts the process of ending the family's victimization. 
Yeah, like after this whole uh, lactation scene, the first one, she really does feel empowered and like she has agency and that sort of translates to to the father. Like the whole change of the family sort of, well, the positive change in that sense starts with the mother and then sort of spreads to the other family members in a, in a way, sort of powerfully symbolized by the last scene, mm. of course. But Visitor Q also sort of uh, imbues, especially the father with some sort of I don't know what you would call it even. Like some sort of spur to action. Yeah. Good or bad. Yeah. He's he's activated. It's a, it's it's like he has a crew member to help him make these uh documentary films and uh he's kind of he has a project and uh he's very engaged in it. Yeah. Visitor Q's function in this movie, I'm reminded of the interview technique where you sort of you ask a question, you let the interviewee reply, and then you don't say anything and they sort of keep talking. Hmm. So just by being there, just by observing, yeah. you're sort of uh, having an effect on them. Yeah, and that's quite interesting as well, because when this film came out, that was kind of when reality TV started to become a big thing. Yeah, I think it was the year Big Brother started, or the year after, yeah. something like that. You'd had some stuff before, like, but this, is, this in some ways is kind of a harsh critique of like, you know, always filming yourself and filming your family and the observer in the place who's kind of responsible, but not, you know, it's kind of like the audience. We're also implicated in this situation where we're observing this horrible stuff and kind of like Mr. Q is, but he's not, you know, uh, relating to it at all. Yeah, it's coming on the cusp of this wave of media that deals with uh, the sort of growth of our navel gazing society, mm. like movies like Truman Show and stuff like that. Mm. You really see that in like late 90s, early 2000s, where you see this uh, sort of uh, critiquing and commenting on the way media is becoming so prevalent and, and the way we were sort of watching ourselves. Yeah, It's interesting in that aspect too, like this movie has a lot of levels to it that you can find, even though on the surface it just seems super absurd. There's another point from, from her article, which I thought was quite fun actually. As the father has his penis stuck in the corpse and calls out to the mother to assist, and she's kind of rediscovered her life-giving ability in a sense. At the same time as he's kind of stuck in death, she's invigorated by life. That's an interesting kind of dynamic there, I think, yeah. Yeah, but she finds her death-giving abilities too <laughs> when she deals yeah. with the bullies. Yeah, when she murders them. Yeah. <laughs> Throws a screwdriver or whatever it is into one of the bullies' heads. And that's, uh, that's sort of a callback to the earlier scene where she tries to throw a knife at the sun. Yeah, that's true, yeah. So it's like she's put this urge to positive use mm. <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, because that's after Visitor Q's shown up and he's making fun of her food, is that it? The son is angry because her mother is cooking up a, a great meal. Yeah. And, and he's like, what is this, someone's birthday or whatever? Yeah, Something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah, he he, yeah, so the son starts to notice a change and he's threatened by Visitor Q's, uh, uh, he doesn't know where this guy is here. And no. the mother's kind of dressed nice because she's really happy. This yeah. is after the first lactation scene. So she's sort of empowered yeah. finally. And so she reacts mm. for one of the first times in her life, it seems by uh, not letting her son bully her mm. and uh, just throwing a knife at mm. him and eating a cucumber yeah. uh, in a victorious manner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's kind of shocked at that. In a sense, you know, the, the big problem with the family dynamic is that um, they don't feel emotionally invested in each other and they're not really seeing each other at all. Even though, you know, the father is, is recording the son, he's not actually noticing or seeing or understanding his son. Or rather, he's just noticing him through the lens as content, as entertainment, not as his actual son. Mm. Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's interesting the way he sort of he has no agency in his real life, but he sort of viewed through the lens of this camera, he sort mm. of he sees what's going on. Mm. And he has this idea of himself as a hero, but only through the camera. Like uh, he wants to create this scene where he saves his son from the bullies. Yeah, this redemption for himself almost. But only as it relates to, you know, his comeback as a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, but it's also sort of like his redemption in everything. Mm. Like suddenly he's his son's savior. Mm. He's got his job back. Mm. He's like his brave dad. Like everything is like he's setting the stage for him, his own redemption. Mm. And it sort of happens through visitor Q almost. Yeah. And violence and necrophilia. Yeah. Milk. uh, Yeah. Like those elements, like uh, why do you think he added that as the backdrop for the family's redemption? Because it seems very like uh, conflicting. The the, the milk? No, no. The the rape and death and everything. Like how do you view this family's redemption through those horrible actions? Yeah. It's totally absurd. I mean, I'm not sure you can draw like a a logical through line. No, but what's the emotional impact of that? Yeah. Emotional, like for the audience. Yeah. um, kind of continuously put off by the absurdity of the situation. Like it gradually becomes more and more nasty and ugly, but also more weird and funny in a sense. There's this deep dissonance in what's going on. Yeah. And yeah, that's one of the ways he also implicates us in a way that all this horrible shit is happening, but you can't not laugh. I guess that's kind of similar to reality TV that you have these people acting out their drama stuff and you're observing it. And you're kind of drawing enjoyment out of their fucked up relationship. Drama and, and yeah. yeah, horrible stuff. Yeah. yeah, in that way, it's sort of, I haven't really thought about it, but it's kind of a nice critique of the whole, well, not reality, but like the observing yeah. society. The culture. Yeah, it's actually really interesting in that way. But I just as just a, a run-of-the-mill audience, I think you can be quite alienated by it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... It is disgusting. Like, you are going to feel weirded out and disgusted. And you're kind of forced to look at these things for a long time. The characters, you know, they act quite, you know, unrealistically in the sense that, you know, suddenly start to lactate might horrify you. But she's kind of empowered and having sex with a corpse is kind of the thing that rejuvenates him in a sense sexually as well, in that he manages to last longer and is enthusiastic. And uh, it seems that up until that point, his sexual encounters have been, you know, not very positive in a sense. Uh, He's kind of pathetic. Yeah, it's like he's regaining control, but he's doing it in the most horrible means. Yeah. Like at one level, I just feel like Takashi Miikin just likes fucking with his audience. Uh, Oh, yeah. I I mean, I know he does, like for uh, each of the killer Mm. He gave the audience like barf bags with the, with the <laughs> logo on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, he's like, he, he finds this funny, I think. Yeah. Uh, it is funny to me anyway. I can totally see why people w- would be extremely put off by it. Mm. But at the same time, like the characters and, and stuff going on, it's so memorable. Mm. Like the scenes are so memorable. It's very like iconic. The stuff he does has this iconic quality to it. Yeah. Do you feel that's because it's extreme that is memorable? No, it's not. Well, part of it is the extremeness, but it's also the juxtaposition of the extremeness in these weird situations mm. and the balancing of that with these weird characters mm-hmm. that make it sort of larger than life almost. It certainly doesn't feel like a normal life, mm. right? It feels very exaggerated and very funny because of it and also very like memorable because of it. Mm. There's this... Uh, weird mix of things that that make that sort of Takashi Miike magic happen. Yeah. But this film, you know, one of the things that make it work, I think, is somehow it's very grounded in its time. You have this uh, this character of the loser father who's is a, like a trope that really became 
a big thing like from the 90s. I mean, I guess Homer Simpson is one of the first like iconic loser father characters. And then you have Randy Marsh from South Park later on, who's like becomes kind of a main character for that series. And they're like these, these really centerpieces of humor and stupidity and and failure yeah well, I, would, I would say not just for those shows even though i would say maybe homer simpson might be one of the first like really iconic figures mm. of of that sort of stature but throughout the 90s and 2000s all sitcoms yeah. had this loser dad with this inexplicably hot wife it was it's like a, a super common trope yeah not so much these days, but it's been a trope for 30 years, right? Yeah. So. I mean, it's not disappeared completely, but there was like a period where, you know, you even had a show called American Dad, yeah, which was about that sort of stupid stuff. Right. And, um, you know, fathers historically tended to be portrayed in a much more serious and heroic manner as a cultural figure. Well, we used to live in a much more patriarchal society too so it's it's not strange that these things have been more commented upon more ridiculed in, in later mm. years where you actually have the ability to do that in more patriarchal societies mm. you often have this sort of cultural need i think mm. to solidify and venerate the father figure mm. in a way that's just not really the current thought or the, the current zeitgeist or whatever you want to call it about how fathers are portrayed in media in general. But I, I think there's also like a, there's a cultural, a general disappointment and uh, discontent about fathers and like the male role as an authority and as a, as a guiding person who is useful and someone to look up to. It's a destabilizing of that kind of dynamic that's that's kind of lost its role in society in a sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, and you and you see it with how like the boomer generation mm. is being portrayed in media these days. Yeah. Like, there's this profound sense of inadequacy mm. and and sort of being let down mm. by a whole generation of parents. Mm. Um, and it's there's a lot of media tackling that and dealing mm. with that. And you, and you see it sort of reverberate in, in all sorts mm. of media and all sorts of uh, portrayals of parenthood. But there is this sort of sense that, I don't know, parenthood just isn't the ideal people once thought it was, maybe. Or, or there's the sense that the idea of a, a like a perfect father mm. is just, it's, it's just that, it's an idea. It mm. almost never occurs in real life, so... So you have these sort of uh, humorous and, and characters of deadbeat dads. Yeah, stick instruction. And uh, and uh, yeah, this this is one of the more poignant versions of that, I think. Not in that it's, you know, realistic or believable, but he's such an extreme in the sense that he he's so uh, detached from... Yeah, he's just such a terrible father mm. that he's just, he's not even noticing what's going on mm. with his wife or with his son at all. Mm. Except as some sort of uh, like a trophy to show his journalist uh, mm. former colleagues that, that he can get into their good graces again. It's like, it's so bad. Mm. So yeah, it's not believable at all, almost, but it's, it's funny and it's sort of extreme how much of a loser this guy is. And like the emotional apathy, like when his son is beating his wife, there's nothing No, he's there. so used to it. He yeah. just, he doesn't comment on it. He doesn't even look... Yeah. Look at it. He's just watching TV or going to bed or yeah. eating his dinner or whatever. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because... It's kind of funny the way it juxtaposes the TV. Right. Yeah, because you see this sort of normalcy on TV, mm. but you don't see it in the family. Yeah. There, everything is just madness and apathy. Funny, funny stuff. Yeah. Really makes you think. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is a film that can make you think if you look closer at it and, you know, reading up on the like the 
the director and and there's been written quite a few interesting things about Takashi Miike. Um, well, he is an interesting director. But I think you can view this movie as just this dark comic movie, mm-hmm. and it works on that level too. Yeah, like this pure shock movie. I, I like. I think I would enjoy it if I was fifteen. Yeah, just because of the fucking crazy scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that was around when I saw it. I yeah, was like, and late. that's that's when I first uh, watched uh, Takashi Miike. Yeah, and at that stage, I, I just liked it because it was just this bizarre movie. Yeah, right. Intensely weird and funny. Yeah, so it it really does work on that level as well. But there is depth to it if mm. you're willing to sort of go beyond the yeah it's not, it doesn't feel like pure exploitation in a way no 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 I, I think Takashi Miki takes his work seriously mm. like it, he's not in it just to exploit or to shock he he really does what well, it seems to me and mm. what he says too like mm. he he takes every movie he makes very seriously mm. and it shows I think it shows yeah. Do you have a recommendation for us? I do have a recommendation. Um, it's not like a typical unpleasant recommendation because it's not wholly unpleasant, but it's a band. That's okay. my recommendation. <laughs> okay. And it's a band called Idols. It's a British band. And uh, it's sort of this post-punk, very, very abrasive, <laughs> extremely like... Their live shows are some of the most aggressive I've seen, but in a very like particular way. Like th- they have this sort of uh, their musical expression is really like extreme and uh, very it's punk like, or what? No, it's not really punk, but it has a, a real sense of punk energy mm. and aggression, and it's just really abrasive and in your face and loud as fuck. Mm. And the lead singer Joe Talbot is just he has this gravelly like when he shouts, it's it's like. It is so like visceral. He has a great, great voice. Like one of the best uh, lead singers I've heard in a couple of years. Oh, like, really? He's, he's really, and he has incredible state presence mm. at live shows. It's just really aggressive and in your face. But what's really cool about them is that all this aggression, all this like extreme, unpleasant sort of in your face uh, music and music videos and everything is just like behind it all, there's this really wholesome uh, okay. theme going on. Like their last album is called Joy as an Act of Resistance. And there's there's a lot of themes of unity and the power of unity and the power of change and like all these sort of things being packaged in this really punch in your face kind of way. But is it like shouty or it's very is it shouty, spitty? It's or? shouty and and it's spitty and it's it's loud and abrasive and wonderful. It kind of way reminds me a bit of uh, Sleaford Mods, huh? which I've uh, recommended earlier on this podcast. It's this sort of very like politically agitated, in your face, uh, sort of coming from almost socialistic point of view of society. It's fucking great. It's uh, one of the fucking, my most treasured musical finds of uh, probably the past year. It's really great. So they're quite contemporary. They are contemporary. Uh, They have a new album coming out, uh, which is how I learned of them, actually. One of the singles from this album, and it's coming out in October, I think. It's called Ultra Mono. So I recommend you check that band out mm. and uh, do check out the new record dropping in October because I think it's going to be a great record. Well, well of the previous music, is there like a song that you would um, highlight? Yeah, I'd check out uh, Mr. Motivator. 
which is a single I first heard of them. But it really, uh, you can check out Joyous and Active Resistance. It's a great album. Uh, any of the singles leading up to this album dropping now, it's going to be good. I haven't heard anything bad from them. Mm. So, yeah, check it out. Nice. So what about you, Thomas? Yeah, I have a recommendation. Um, you sound a bit trepidatious as you say that. <laughs> uh, well, it's it's quite funny. That's the thing. It's an episode of a series called Tim and Eric's Bedtime Stories. And Tim and Eric, they're a couple of American humorists, comedians, known for their show, Tim and Eric Awesome Show, Great Job, which was like this underground phenomenon of like weirdo antics. And this is a show they did after that, which is kind of higher production value, slightly longer, maybe like up to a quarter of an hour. The old series was like 10 minute episodes mostly. It's kind of like a horror anthology series by these two guys. And the episodes are quite varied. Some of them are funny, some are just weird, some of them, are, you know, a little bit unpleasant. And uh, my favorite of the bunch is, I think it's the second episode, it's called Toes. Oh yeah, that's great. With uh, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk, right from... Uh, Breaking uh, Bad. Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. You know, he's a like, serious, really good actor. He's done a lot of stuff with Tim and Eric, like plays these really stupid, annoying characters. But in this yeah, but one, he's, he's from a humor background as well. I think yeah. Mr. Show. Yeah, um, that's right. So, so that's sort of how Tim and Eric and they, like he was on a lot of their skits yeah. uh, in Tim and Eric. Mm. And uh, in this one, he, he plays a more serious role, but the, the premise is so weird. It's like, um, he's kind of like a dentist, except instead of like dealing with your teeth, his job is to cut off people's toes. So people come in to his office and they say, uh, hello, Dr. Odenkirk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, could you please have a look at my toes? I'm thinking of cutting off some of them. And he looks at them and he pucks them a bit and says, hmm, oh, well, it looks like you have at least a couple of years left. Are you, are you sure that you'd like me to? And uh, so, so that's the premise of, of, of the character. And the story itself is just like this weird little parable around him. And, you know, it's, but it's quite nicely shot. It's really funny. It's really weird. And it's, it's deeply unpleasant. It it shows very clearly cutting off toes in a. Yeah, it's it's great. I think that's probably my favorite episode of of this bedtime stories. Yeah, like the shows are they're up and down in quality, but mm. most of it it's uh, good in on one level or another. But this episode in particular is just so well put together. It's like, like this whole thing works really well, yeah. and Bob Odenkirk is a huge part of it. He's, he really sells the yeah, character. Yeah, he sells the role well, because he can do both like the weird comedy stuff and the, the serious actor stuff, and it's quite absurd. But, you know, like, the, the narrative is, is kind, kind of nice as well. It's yeah. it's kind of cliche. But it's know. well shot. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it really, like the production value is a lot higher than their earlier stuff, yeah. so it, it looks very, very nice. Yeah. The series itself is, is quite good. As you say, they're always a bit up and down. Sometimes they just hit a nerve really well. And this is one of the highlights, I think. Yeah. yeah. I would also say um, I really like Sauce Boy. Yeah. <laughs> which is another episode yeah. from that show. Uh, it's not, it doesn't work as well as this whole episode, but mm. it just has a couple of scenes that are just so mm. fucking yeah. out there. It has this awkwardness, weirdness to it. That's uh, this character, Sauce Boy. <laughs> Pretty funny. Yeah, it's it's great. I agree with that recommendation wholeheartedly. Adult Swim, they sometimes um, have a bunch of free stuff just on the site, so it's possible to just go on Adult Swim. I'm not sure if that episode's available right now, but a bunch of their stuff is free on the site. Yeah, well worth checking out. Well, that's just for this time, I think. Yeah, so uh, if you'd like to get in touch, feel free to send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. You can also check out our Instagram where we put out some of the artwork and hint at films to come. Unpleasant movies at Instagram. Just search for us there. 
You find us. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Juskarning and Sverre Ogor. My name is Thomas Simonsen Barnbra. Next episode, we're going to talk about another film by Takashimike. It's Audition. So you can see that in preparation and um, we'll see you then. Yeah, we will. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye.